Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. And this is our weekly roundup, where we bring in a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape. On today's incredible panel, returning to the roundup is Politicology fan favorite Lucy Caldwell. Lucy is a veteran political strategist, tech founder, and former senior political advisor at the Goldwater Institute. Twice in two weeks, Lucy, it's great to see you again. How lucky am I to be back with you, Ron? (laughs) And making his Politicology debut is Simon Rosenberg. Simon is the founder of New Democratic Network. He's a veteran of two presidential campaigns, including the 1992 Clinton campaign and a former advisor to the DCCC during the 2018 election cycle. And he is a Henry Crown Fellow at the Aspen Institute. Simon, it's great to have you on and welcome to Politicology. Great to be here. Thank you so much for the opportunity. On this week's Roundup, Steve Bannon's indictment on contempt of Congress charges... Beto O'Rourke announces he's running for governor of Texas and what that can mean for other 2022 races. The Republicans flirting with the 2024 run for president. And finally, in our segment for Politicology Plus members, we'll talk about the speculation of a Harris-Buttigieg fight to be the next Democratic nominee for president. If you're not already subscribed, you can head over to politicology.com slash plus to get the plus segment and join our community. Let's dig in. Last Friday, the Justice Department announced that a federal grand jury returned an indictment against former Trump advisor and human flamethrower Steve Bannon for contempt of Congress. Bannon was charged with one count for refusing to appear for a deposition before the January 6th committee and also one count for refusing to produce subpoenaed documents. Now, each count carries a minimum of 30 days and a maximum of one year in jail, according to the Justice Department. And on Monday, Bannon surrendered to FBI agents and was released without bail, but he's required to check in weekly with court officials, surrender his passport, according to the Associated Press. After Bannon appeared before a judge on Monday morning, he said that he was, quote, going on the offensive against the Attorney General, Speaker of the House, and President Biden. And outside the courthouse, he declared that it was going to be, quote, a misdemeanor from hell, end quote, for Merrick Garland, Nancy Pelosi, and Joe Biden. Bannon's indictment came hours after White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows defied a separate subpoena from the January 6th committee, and both Bannon and Meadows are key witnesses for the committee because we know they were both in close communication with Trump during the attack. So let's start with the impact this might have on the January 6th committee's ability to actually get to the bottom of what happened. Because at this point, They probably have 13 months left, generously, to investigate the attempt to hold people accountable. So I want to think about how a protracted fight uh, might impact their work. Uh, Lucy, if these people are around, you know, these people around Trump are able to wait out the clock, what is it going to mean for the future of of democracy if we never get a full accounting of what happened? And is is that possible? Well, listen, last week on the Roundup, our friend Mike Madrid said, be patient, be patient, the indictments are coming. And they did. And now we see Steve Bannon um, really being taken to account. But but sort of trust in the Justice Department is different than what the political implications are. And so while it's one thing to be patient about the timing of these indictments, now is the time to hope for speed in this process and hope for I think the volume being to continue to being turned up by House Democrats and and the Justice Department. Because I say this because if you watch the footage of Steve Bannon leaving the courthouse, he was exuberant and he had throngs of people following him and he was live streaming his whole thing on a Trump uh, favorite social platform. And Steve Bannon is a person who has a podcast that has literally millions and millions of downloads every month. And he's a person that ProPublica has has cited as a person who has caused thousands of Americans who are suffering from the cult of Trump to go become GOP precinct committeemen. So I say that to say it is not enough to simply indict Bannon and move that process forward, the tempo needs to go up a lot because all of those things that Steve Bannon was saying that you cited just now, that is Steve Bannon upping the volume. And he's very savvy and he knows ways to use this kind of context for his benefit and the benefit of his cause. And so 
Democrats and also just anyone, all of us who give a damn about democracy have to meet the moment uh, of the tactics of someone like Bannon. Yeah. So Simon, uh, I was speaking with uh, Congressman Adam Schiff recently, just earlier this week for uh, an episode that will be out in the coming weeks. And one of the things I expressed concern to him over was the the likelihood that Steve Bannon becomes a martyr to his people, to the to the Republican base, you know, it's especially with the backdrop of the mythologization of the January 6th insurrection and, you know, the 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 pledging of allegiance to a flag that was flown there at a rally for Glenn Youngkin in Virginia just a few weeks ago, where Trump called in. And, you know, it it's it's taking on a life of its own uh and and is being celebrated. And so um, you combine that with this Pew poll uh, from September that shows that a majority of Americans said they have little to no confidence the committee's investigation will be fair and reasonable. And so I wonder how you're thinking about this. If Bannon and Trump world are able to turn the committee's investigation into, you know, which which hunt 2.0 or 3.0 or however many we've had now, how is that going to impact Let's just take the midterms, for example, because everyone's wringing their hands about that. How do you see that impacting the political landscape going into 2022? It's a great question. Um, And I think that, you know, Democrats have to come to realize that we're in this fight and we're going to be in this fight for a long time. I mean, this is not something that's going to be resolved in the next year, six months. I mean, there's a large number of Americans who've become terribly radicalized. We have a radicalized political movement in the United States. It would also be fair to say that the Republican Party is doing nothing to distance itself from that radicalization. In fact, the danger of what's happened to Republicans is that MAGA has replaced conservatism as the governing ideology of of one of our two political parties. And so this is a really major development. I think Democrats have kind of hope for the best and just believe by beating Trump that this would all go away. And it's obviously now far worse than it was because it's now the whole party and not just Trump himself. And I think that we all we can do is do the right thing. Right. I mean, I think I think that we just have to keep recognizing we can't be scared of doing subpoenas. We can't be scared of the backlash. We can't be scared of any of these things. We just have to go do what we think is right, because this may be the most significant issue the country faces. And frankly, I think Democrats have really struggled to to mount both a rhetorical and strategic response to what's happened to the Republicans beyond defeating Trump. So I I will just say as a citizen, I'm very grateful to the January 6th committee. I think they're doing remarkable work. And I think it's very unlikely that any of the Trump folks are going to ever testify. And that doesn't mean we can't keep going and, and pursuing you know, justice here. And so I, I'm actually um, optimistic about the process. I would like, though, Democrats to figure out how we're really going to engage these issues during the election. I do think the DCCC is telling candidates that we need to make the radicalization of the Republican Party central to the 2022 elections. That was not the case in previous elections in 2016, 2018, right? So I, I think the party is evolving. And I particularly think this is happening in the House because the House was in the chamber when they came. The senators were not. And I think there's an enormous cultural difference in Washington between the two chambers and their experiences of what happened on January 6th. And it's why you're seeing the House be far more aggressive about prosecuting this because it was proximate. People felt like they were going to die. And and they lived it in a very intense way that the senators didn't, right? We saw the empty chamber in the Senate. So I'm, 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 I think I'm optimistic about what the committee's doing, and I think as a party, we have a lot of work to do. Yeah, here, here. I mean, I, I totally agree. While we're on the topic of the insurrection, we should talk about Paul Gosar. So on Wednesday, the House voted to censure and strip Republican Paul Gosar after he tweeted a video depicting himself as an anime character assassinating Representative Alexandria Ocasio Cortez. I can't, I just, I can't believe where we are that this is that this is in the roundup. Gosar's sister Jennifer was on MSNBC and called for his expulsion over his role in the January sixth insurrection. And we have a clip of that. Here's what she had to say. This is painful for your family because the things he has done and said are so well beyond the norm. Do you think he should be censured? 
Absolutely. I also applaud Representative Raul Grijalva because it was reported that he introduced um, committee assignment stripping um, to the motion. And I applaud that because uh, honestly, to read Paula Censure is historic, but it does not carry a consequence other than embarrassment. And in that respect, I think Paul doesn't care about embarrassment. I mean, I would be embarrassed to have, you know, things like this printed about me, images, um, statements. I mean, in that respect, embarrassment means nothing to Paul. So it really, it's important to have measures that hold him responsible. And measures such as removing him from the key committees? Absolutely. As a start, honestly, Andrea, I wouldn't say that that is a stopping point because what we have seen from my brother, this is a repeated threat against Ocasio-Cortez. Um, in 2016, accredited the same account. He was with the same anime cartoon. Um, he was the hero with a death note, right, as reported in the AZ Mirror, where he wrote death notes against then-candidate or, or then former Vice President Biden, Ocasio-Cortez, and others. So this is not actually the first incident. This is a repeat, and it's an escalation. So at least from that, we have you know grounds for more. However, from all the information we've learned, I believe my brother to be a co-conspirator in the, uh, a coup attempt against the United States government. So I think expulsion is actually the most appropriate next step after this, but certainly censure and committee stripping is a good start. So, Lucy, there's really two separate issues here, right? There's there's the there's the cartoon uh, and the censure, and then there's the bigger problem of the, the 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 question of potential consequences for an elected official who played a role in the attack. So, how are you thinking about it? Yeah, I think that those are all realities. I mean, Paul Gosar is a is a very problematic member, and there's quite a bit of uh, indications that he will be reelected and he will continue to do exactly what he is doing. Um, and in the case of Paul Gosar, he's actually just kind of also a microcosm of what's happening to American families. Paul Gosar actually has six siblings. And as early as 2018, all six siblings came out and cut an ad for his then challenger, David Brill. And if you've never seen it, it's like one of the most just <laughs> gut-punching um, political ads you'll ever see of, of these siblings describing how unfit they believe he has become. And it is a reminder of the, the very human aspect of what's going on, not only with these members of Congress, but also American families. And, and I think someone like Paul Gosar, yeah, he probably always had this in him, but when Paul Gosar was elected in, in 2010, he seemed like he was just kind of a, a typical Tea Party congressman. And what we're seeing now from members like Paul Gosar is not explained by the Tea Party movement. It may be connected, but it is it is more than just an outgrowth. And so I think it's just another reminder to Democrats and to, again, anyone who cares about democracy that that these are not normal rules of engagement. This is why you have to meet Steve Bannon where Steve Bannon is. And you can't just think, well, we're civil and we're going to give you um, bridges and roads. I mean, that's just, that's not, that's not working. I wish that were working, but it's not working. Simon, is this going to matter? Is this censure going to have any political consequences for him whatsoever? I mean, two things I, I think just building on was just said is that, I do think we have to recognize that there is madness connected to MAGA, right? I mean, literal madness, you know, and uh, Trump is a madman. I mean, Paul Gosar is a madman. And, and I think there's this is hard to talk about. I mean, I, I still think that one of the things we all need in the Democratic Party is we need a, a big research project that helps us figure out how to talk about this to regular people without sounding like a partisan crazy person, right? And, and I don't think we're there yet. I don't think we have the language and frame in the narrative and the story that we have to tell uh, adequately. And I think a lot of people are kind of ducking and hoping this kind of all goes away. Um, but I do think that the bigger issue here is, the, is what's happened to Republicans and that where Terry McAuliffe, for example, made a huge error, tactical error, I think, in Virginia, is that he talked about Trump. And what he needed to show was that he, it's not about Trump anymore. It's about how they've all become MAGA. 
It's about the evolution of an entire party, right? He needed to point out how Yunkin himself had MAGA qualities, that it wasn't about Trump any longer. It was about the metastasization of this virulent, you know, political virus in our country. And we've got a lot of work to do to tell that story. Um, I do think, again, the January 6th Commission is doing a remarkable job in advancing this in, a, in as fair-minded a way as we possibly could, given the nature of the politics here. But I can't, you know, I work, I've been working with members of Congress for 30 years. I've been here in Washington for 30 years. I can't tell you the impact this has really had on Democratic members and just how much this has altered their worldview, their willingness to fight. I mean, and, and I think that, you know, again, the House Democrats, I think, are going to be the engine of this narrative and story that we have to tell to the American people. Uh, if you just look at the DCCC's Twitter feed, right, just in the last couple of days, they are leaning hard into this radicalization of the Republicans as a central narrative of the election. Thank God, by the way. I mean, if we don't, if we don't make it one of the two or three things that's central, I think we'll be leaving behind one of the most powerful tools we have to push them, to make them feel unfit and, and too dangerous to be trusted with power again. Um, and if we, and it, it's, I think it's, the, it's, it's one of the reasons why I'm actually very optimistic about the elections next year because I do think that we have enough tools to paint them as being unfit and, you know, and too dangerous to allow back. I totally agree. I also really like that characterization of MAGA as a virus. It is, it is sort of its own, its own, uh, version of a pandemic. And I also think coming up with language, um, and not just language, but visuals to make the threats against democracy, real visceral, tangible as opposed to high-minded in in rhetoric is I think the 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 mandate that the Democrats have right now because I, I've I've talked with this talked about this with a number of people and I'm concerned that the that the rhetoric around protecting democracy is so abstract and high-minded as to be inaccessible to too many people. And and uh it just tactically um Showing what that means seems to be the only opportunity, one of the only opportunities Democrats have at, at, at winning, at holding on next year. I, I want to just say, though, I don't think it's I don't think we should keep this conversation just around democracy. You know, allowing the country to go bankrupt is as radical as what they did on January 6th. You know, legitimizing vigilantism in Texas around, you know, around Roe v. Wade is as radical as January 6th, trying to strip healthcare away from tens of millions of people, right, with no alternative, is as radical and dangerous as January 6th. And I think that the point I want to get to is we have to make the target bigger. We have to make the story bigger. We have to make it easier to explain that it's not like they've gone really crazy on democracy, but they're really good on all this other stuff. They're not. They're not good on anything else, right? I mean, they've been completely radicalized across the board. And and it's not and there's and it's the Supreme Court, it's Mitch McConnell, it's Kevin McCarthy, it's the whole enterprise. And I think that's why, you know, we've got a lot to work with going into the election next year. I agree and disagree with that, in that I agree that there is so much more than January 6th, the vigilantism, the the culture wars. But I actually think that in a way, the 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 taking on too much. Is, is where Democrats get in trouble, taking on things like um, government programs or or even, even something, and I, this is not to debate the merits, something like paid leave or any number of, of social programs that Democrats are pushing. I think that when those things get overly linked to democracy or this stuff that is in the column that is like, this is anti-American, this is anti-democratic, that that's where you, I think, Democrats start to lose people. And so so I do think that the messaging has to get broader. And if it can be positive messaging, that's fantastic. But I think that Democrats, part of the shift that they have to make, that we, I think, see they they did not successfully make between, say, Biden's election and Glenn Youngkin's a few weeks ago, is believing that that perception of just the Republicans are off the deep end 
could could last. And and so I think that it's it's a it's a fine it's a fine so needle to thread. Let me let me jump in if I yeah, if please. you don't mind, Ron. Is that so I, I agree with you and and that you know it's a really to me it, there's a three part strategy for twenty twenty two. Right. One is that we have to convince people that we defeated COVID and secured the economic recovery. That is central reason Democrats won the election in 2020, and we have to show that we actually got it done. We then can run on the rest of our agenda, right, once we've sort of secured this notion that, you know, we, we made things better for everybody. And we also have all these really good things that we've passed, many of which, by the way, will not be, have happened by the election. And so I think there's going to be a limited utility, frankly, in BBB and the infrastructure bill. And then we make the case about their radicalization, right? Whatever the language is, we have to establish the positive story and narrative about what we've done, how we've made things better, we've kept our promises. And that only when we do that will we have the ability to indict them. And I think that my view about what happened with Yunkin is that I think Yunkin was an outlier. I think that he had more tools to distance himself from MAGA than the House and Senate Republican candidates will, who are basically going to, if they win and you vote for a Republican House member or senator, you're actually voting to put MAGA in charge of the country. That was not true, true with Glenn Youngkin, right? Glenn Youngkin was a local candidate. And so I think there's a vast difference between that race and what's going to happen in the federal races next year. Okay. Let's talk about Texas and then some. On Monday, former Representative Beto O'Rourke, an alum of this podcast, uh, announced he's running for governor of Texas. Within 24 hours, O'Rourke's campaign had raised more than $2 million, the largest single-day statewide midterm campaign haul in Texas history. Texas Governor Greg Abbott has $55 million in the bank as they head toward the 2022 midterm election. O'Rourke gained national attention in 2018 when he came within three percentage points of defeating Ted Cruz for the Senate seat in Texas, but the state has moved significantly since then. As Beto made his announcement, a 19-year Democratic state representative changed parties due to a redrawing of his district, according to the Washington Post. A late October poll from the University of Texas and the Texas Tribune found that 55% of voters in the state disapproved of President Biden's job performance, nearly two-thirds disapproved of how Biden has handled immigration and border security, 51% said the Republican-controlled state government is, quote, a good model for other states to follow. The last time a Democrat was the governor of Texas was when Ann Richards left office in 1995 after losing re-election to George W. Bush. We've talked a lot about the uphill battle that Democrats are going to have uh, in, in elections across the country next year. The DCCC has 32 incumbents in their frontline program, uh, which gives extra resources and support to their most vulnerable seats. And they'll have uh, to defend Senate seats in Georgia, Arizona, Nevada, and New Hampshire, where all of the incumbents are vulnerable. Uh, Vermont Senator Patrick Leahy just announced that he's not running for re-election. So, you know, I, I, I won't presume to speak for all of us, but I just want to start by saying I'd be thrilled if if Beto O'Rourke was the governor of Texas in 2023. Uh, but, you know, when I spoke with Steve Israel about his time as as chair of the DTRIP, he talked about how his job was to manage the climate of the election. So, Simon, you were advising, uh, you were advising the DTRIP in 2018. Um, how should we be thinking about the difference between the climate in 2018 midterms and the 2022 midterms for Democrats? Well, obviously we're the incumbent party now, right? But but I want to I want to say that I would rather be us than them in heading into 2022, and I know that I'm in a minority opinion uh, in that regard, and it's because I I don't think I think if MAGA if the Republicans had taken an off ramp from MAGA and institutionally and sort of tried to make peace with suburban voters, um, I think we'd be in real trouble in this election, but that hasn't happened. And so I think what's going to happen is the Republicans are going to have a very low ceiling. This is my view, and we'll see if it happens next year. Um, and it means the election is going to be competitive. Uh, you know, I I do think, I love Beto. I, I'm a huge Beto fan. And I, I thought Beto's uh, launch video was really compelling. The language in it was fresh and new and his indictment of the Republicans was powerful, right? And we were talking about this earlier. He he went after the whole thing, right? He didn't, you know, and and his and his way of describing them as being dangerous and out of touch, I thought was very effective. Frankly, I think national Democrats could learn a little bit from what Beto did the other day. 
So I, I don't know what's going to happen. And I, and I think that there, there's one really big, there are two sort of big wild cards here that I think we just don't know. One is the stuff we've been talking about, right, which is their radicalization and the fact that people know it, by the way. I mean, if you've noticed on the congressional generic poll, right, we've lost ground, but they haven't gained any ground. And I know that in the ABC Washington Post poll they did, but in the 538 aggregate, there's been no upward tick for the Republicans. And so where we are now is that people may be disappointed in Biden and the Democrats, but there hasn't been a big shift yet, yet, right, to the Republicans. The second unknown is COVID. And, and I think this is why this election is completely different than 2018 or 2010 or 20 whatever, right? Because on the central issue of this election, the Republicans blew it in a major way. And they're, and they're down 20, 30, 40 points on, on you know, the worst public health crisis in the, you know, the history of the country. And so I do think that that kind of thing is so distortive to the normal way that we understand politics that we should not yet believe that we really know how this election is going to play out. I think in Virginia, you saw an example of it. I think a lot of the education stuff was COVID related, which the CRT, you know, grafted on top, right? And so I think the issue of how COVID manifests over the next year and the aftermath is really a big unknown. And I think, frankly, the political discourse is, I think, really discounting to a much greater degree the impact, the potential residual impact of some of the COVID because if you talk to the DCCC, they will tell you there are two issues that pop in their research about the radicalization of the Republicans, the democracy stuff and COVID. And COVID is a huge problem for the Republican Party, I think. And, we, and I don't think it's going to be an issue that's going to go away. COVID is going to be with us as a country for a very long time. And our ability to paint them as it's a powerful tool to help paint this picture of them as being out of the mainstream and letting people die, right? I mean, this is the kind of stuff that people don't expect out of their political leaders. I, I, I think that's right. And especially when you start thinking about childhood vaccinations and the and the role that's going to play in schools and, and education, yeah. which was one of the top two issues, I think, in the Virginia races. So yeah, yeah. Lucy, what do you think about that? Yeah, I, I think that's all true. And I have found the coverage of O'Rourke's announcement to be incredibly frustrating. I mean, the, I think the Washington Post and the Washington Post coverage that you cited um, basically said, but Beto has this incredible uphill battle because um, Texas is being pulled toward Trump. That's a bunch of BS. I mean, I went back and looked. I did a little sort of revisited some election returns. Joe Biden is the first Democrat to top 45% in Texas since Jimmy Carter, Woo! since a, a long time ago, <laughs> since the 70s, right? Better outperformed Obama, outperformed both Clintons. It, it, is just, it is just absurd to act as though, you know, Texas has gone to the Trumpist. We have a ton of evidence to suggest the opposite. And I think that that kind of coverage is really damaging. And it's, it's, we could have, it's a, it's a different conversation, but I think that the narrative that is being told, I, I agree with Simon. I think that in 2022, Democrats are in better shape than people are giving them credit for. I think that there's some messaging that needs to change, but I, I don't think that all is lost. And I also think even as we look ahead to 2024, and that's a long way away, I really reject the notion that no one can beat Donald Trump if Donald Trump runs again. It, the, the, this sort of idea that Trump is this foregone conclusion. I think that a lot of Democrats could beat Trump, and I think a lot of Democrats can beat a lot of other Republicans if if the messaging is is worked out. Yeah, I mean, keep in mind that since MAGA became you know a thing, Democrats had huge turnout incredible performance in 2018. We had huge turnout, very strong performance in 2020. We won in Georgia in 2021 in what's supposed to have been a low turnout election. We won in California, outperformed 2018 numbers. And it could be that the Virginia, New Jersey race came at a time when Biden was plummeting in the polls and candidates were not really prepared for how hostile the environment got. And they didn't run campaigns based on a, a Biden being down eight. I mean, if Biden had been down two or three, we would have, Terry McAuliffe would have won by five points, right? And so I think that it's very possible that Virginia wasn't a harbinger, but was an outlier. And that, and, and the other thing to keep in mind is that, um, 
you know, we, there's just more Democratic voters than there are Republican voters based on the last two elections where we had very, very high turnout. We have far better tools to turn out our voters than we've ever had before. And I think this is one of the reasons we've had very high turnout is because, you know, our party has more voters, but we have more episodic voters, right? We have people, we have younger people, you know, and people that haven't yet become regular voters. And so turnout really matters for us. And the kind of distributed phone technology where I can sit in my house and make 10 hours of phone calls into Virginia. I mean, I, I, none of that stuff existed four years ago, six years ago. So I think we, we have to recognize that all this additional money in our campaigns, um, new tools, allows us to talk more one-on-one -on -one with Democrats to get them to vote. And we know when you talk to people, they vote more. So I think we have tools to prevent the kind of midterm drop-off that we've seen. Um, before. That is another reason why, you know, I'd rather be us than them in 2022. So I think I agree with you that Virginia may be an outlier, but I think the thing that isn't an outlier is the way Glenn Youngkin tried to walk the line between being a Trumpist and uh, and accepting the support from the Trump base. I think that is definitely a model to watch for Republicans in, you know, especially as we look at, you know, so Democrats have Senate seats in Georgia, Arizona, Nevada, New Hampshire, and now an open seat in Vermont. And I, I just, I think, I think what they're going to have to do is, is, is essentially not let Republicans get away with being Glenn Youngkin, right? It's going to come down to, uh, demonstrating how they're part of a radicalizing party. Agreed. Okay. Let's talk about 2024. Anyone who watches <laughs> cable news has seen a lot of former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie lately. Uh, according to Adam Rupar, in the last week, Christie has been featured in the New York Times, has an hour-long CNN special, done two other interviews on CNN, three MSNBC hits, been on CNBC, ABC, Fox News uh, twice, and made appearances on The Daily Show and Fox Business Christie is out promoting his new book, Republican Rescue, <laughs> saving the party from truth deniers, conspiracy <laughs> theorists, and the dangerous policies of Joe Biden. I can't believe this is real. A part of this media tour uh, was when he sat down with Nicole Wallace on her MSNBC show, and she pushed him on why he didn't address Fox News in a book about conspiracy theories. And here's that exchange because it's too delicious not to play. Yeah, um, so I read that section carefully. Um, but, you know, the book is called, um, it's about conspiracies and lies, and you really don't take on Fox News. Why not? Look, because the book was- Have you seen the Tucker No, because, because the book, no, I, I don't watch it, but the book- Are you aware of what he does? Not really. I don't pay a lot of attention to it's, it. It's a book but, but, with but, truth but, deniers, but, conspiracy theorists on right, the cover. Right. And you and, attack and, CNN and, and the New York Times and MSNBC and not but, Fox. But, but excuse me, I don't attack them as conspiracy theorists or truth deniers. I talk about bias. And is bias more dangerous bias. to the country and than conspiracy theorists? No, but that's the third section of the book. I read Where it. I talk about the movement forward. In the center portion of the book, we talk about the conspiracy theories and the truth denying that went on with things like QAnon, Pizzagate, the election situation, John Birch Society. And that's what I talk about. There's two sections of the book, and I'm sure accidentally you're conflating them. I'm not conflating them, but I don't think you, you have, I don't think it's an intellectually honest case to make against conspiracy theories without taking on Fox News. Well, I could listen, then you can write that in your book. Well, I'm not trying to rescue the Republican Party. I understand. Well, <laughs> okay. So, all right. Um, First of all, I think that Adam's uh, criticism of all of this news media coverage that Christie has gotten on this on this book tour is a symptom of something really wrong in our media ecosystem. Because I think it's just too. First of all, he's like C list at this point, right? He's kind of he can't answer serious questions when he's pressed, <laughs> and it's just too fun to dunk on Chris Christie because it makes and it makes for good ratings. It draws more eyeballs. It's it, it makes it makes people feel good, and I think that's why uh, he's he's getting all of this all of this coverage. And I just think it speaks to like the, the 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 corrupted incentives in our media ecosystem. But that's just me, Lucy. Uh, Chris Christie is just <laughs> one of a half dozen or so Republicans, right, who are playing footsie with the presidential run in twenty twenty four. 
how are you thinking about his attempts to position himself as close enough to Trump to keep Trump supporters? Basically playing, you know, the Gwen Youngkin uh, playbook. If Trump isn't running, but you know, distancing himself enough to try to win some of the college-educated white voters who voted for Biden in 2020. Well, Chris Christie is another episode in showing us how deep the illness runs, the illness of the cult of Trump, because Chris Christie won't even say, he won't, as you allude to, Chris Christie will not commit to not voting for Trump in 2024 if he's the nominee. He won't even commit to having a having facing him in a primary. And he's he's not the only Republican who's talking this way. Brad Raffensperger, whom we talked about on this podcast many months ago, who's the Secretary of State of Georgia, who Trump intimidated, recently came out with a book about his experience and how terrible it was and his family being threatened. And he was on MSNBC this week being interviewed by Mehdi Hassan. And he, the whole segment, he goes on and on about how terrible it was, how he was threatened, how awful it was. And then, I mean, this is like, the, the core the, the core recording featured in the second impeachment. And then at the end, Mehdi Hassan said, you would not vote for him, right? You'll commit to not ever voting for him again. He's like, well, 2024 is a long way away. I mean, it's insanity. I mean, these people have lost it. But Christie is frightening in particular because he shows, I think, a lot of people who want the Republican Party to go back, and I mean, I should be doing air quotes, right? But to how things were, um, they love a vehicle like Chris Christie. He seems safe. He seems moderate. And and it, 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 Chris Christie actually really frightens me for that reason. And I've been asking people to start using a different test. And I guess we could maybe have a Chris Christie test, but to use a Liz Cheney test. So we've talked about Glenn Youngkin, right? And how he threaded the needle. And then after the fact, Liz Cheney embraced Glenn Youngkin, was like, this is such a good thing. But Glenn Youngkin is not embracing Liz Cheney. And no Republican who wants to have a future in the party is likely to embrace Liz Cheney. So I have been encouraging folks in my life for whom the line is not do you absolutely repudiate Trump, which for me is the line. That is the line between whether I could support someone or not. I've been encouraging them when they're thinking about a Republican candidate, ask that person or get that person on the record. Do you think Liz Cheney has a future in the party? Would you like to see Liz Cheney as a um, presidential contender in 2024? Should she be, you know, given um, put in leadership again? And none of them are going to answer yes. They're all going to give some mealy-mouthed answer, but ultimately they're all going to come down on the side of Trumpism, just like Chris Christie really is at the end of the day. But that's part of the going on on offense, right? It's reframe this narrative. I actually don't think that asking Christie, I love Nicole Wallace and she's right, but I don't even think that's very effective for people, right? We should be asking about, what, how big of a tent they would have, because that's when they will start um, performing in their in their typical um, typical uh, lighting up for Trump kind of way. Yeah, Simon, open ended to you. How did you read this? <laughs> um, you know, I'm from New York. I grew up. My family's all from New York, and I was grew up in the New York area. And and I I think Christie is such a creature of the New York region. I mean, he's such an asshole, right? And such a, and such a, like, but, but, but formatively, right? Like on purpose, right? And, and he was it's kind just of, not sorry to interrupt you, but he kind of like wanted to be Trump before Trump was Trump, yeah, right? And, and, <laughs> but it's also kind of a New York thing, right? And, and it's, it just isn't going to play like he's, I don't think he's a serious presidential candidate. I, I don't, I don't think that he's, you know, he needs to, he's going to pretend there's going to be a competition, as Lucy was saying for this, never Trumper lane, right? And various people would be in various intensities of it or on the range of of areas. And I, you know, look, I, I think the, I don't think Trump's going to run is my own view and in 2024. And I, you know, the question is who could beat him or who would be a competitive candidate for them? I worry about Yunkin. I mean, I, frankly, I worry about Yunkin. I'm not worried about DeSantis. I think he's an unbelievable buffoon. And it didn't stop Trump from getting elected, but I, I, I'm not, 
I think DeSantis comes off as just inauthentic and ridiculous in some ways. Like Trump was always Trump. And Abbott is obviously not going to be a serious national candidate. So I, I don't know that I really see I'm worried about Yunkin, and I think we're going to rue the day that we lost that Virginia race because he looks like a country club Republican. He was central casting, you know, um, of what a country club Republican looks like, even if he's not ideologically a country club Republican, he plays one on TV really well. Right. And I think that what's going to really matter for Democrats is this first legislative session for him. Uh, is going to really matter. And we've got to, the National Party's got to pay attention to this. We've got to be engaged. We've got to challenge him. We can't make, he cannot have an easy path um, because he's, of all the Republicans in the party right now, he worries me more than anybody else for 2024. I mean, he's, he's a Mitt Romney-like figure. Now, can he make peace with the Trump wing if Trump doesn't run or can he beat and run against Trump? Who knows what's going to happen right on their side? I mean, it's such a crazy mess. So there are more uh, in this 2024 segment. We also saw former Trump national security advisor and Roger Stone's ideal 2024 candidate of Trump isn't running, Michael Flynn, call for one religion in the U.S. to win the battle of good versus evil over the weekend. Uh, he was speaking at the Reawaken America tour in, in Texas this weekend. Here's what he said. We are going to have one nation under God, which we must. We have to have one religion, one, one, one nation under God and one religion under God. So clearly the Constitution doesn't belong in the tent anymore, but uh, how should we expect this signaling around religion to shape the political atmosphere, especially on the right, Lucy? Well, he's not the only one to say this crazy stuff. Josh Mandel this week, who's the race to the bottom Republican um, senator, Senate candidate in Ohio, who is... Jewish tweeted this week, liberal Jews and radical Muslims are irrelevant to our campaign. Evangelical Christians, Jewish conservatives, and devout, devout Catholics are our army. Wow. Okay. <laughs> so the, the, all I can think when I read these quotes from these people is the Republican Party today, they're all saying the quiet part out loud. They are just giving voice to the most egregious and ugliest rhetoric. And and I think it's it, it's an interesting frame to think about the kind of hysteria over cancel culture and, and all of the, that kind of stuff that pervades because really what we're seeing, I think, are a, we're seeing a, a, a tide of culture in the Republican Party where just saying stuff that, that, that never would have been appropriate 10 years ago. It is, we are becoming more progressive and acceptive and as a society and and more considerate and understanding of people with different experiences but that would not have been an acceptable thing to say a decade ago and and probably not 20 years ago either and so i i think that 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 those kinds of lines i think when you when you look at why democrats were successful in 2020 it was because in part moderate people, suburban women, swing voters, independents felt like the, just the visceral piece of the Republican Party. It's so ugly. They couldn't join that. They couldn't be a part of that. And luckily for Democrats, Republicans are continuing to facilitate these layups with this kind of messaging. And I think the biggest thing is to just spread the news of the crazy shit they're saying Far and wide. Yes. Yes. And I think, you know, it it, it often goes without saying or goes unsaid among, you know, we, we practitioners, but I think we have to remember to say out loud, like extremism raises money like crazy. And that's where, you know, the vast majority of fundraising comes now for Republicans and for Democrats too. A lot of it comes from like the fringes, but, and so they're saying a lot of the quiet parts out loud because that's what riles up the the grassroots fundraising bases. That's just how that's 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 real. I, that's just on top of what you're saying. Yeah. And they're fundraising. You also don't have to fundraise from people in your communities anymore, right? You don't need people who live in your district to support your race to be a financially viable candidate. You can raise. You're raising money online, out of state, from the other people with ugly hearts harboring ugly ideas who live across the country. So 
that that's just that's a problem that we have to have a reckoning with. Simon, I have a, a bit of a tougher one for you. Missouri Senator Josh Hawley told Axios that he'll he'll make masculinity a signature political issue. And he claims that the left, I put that in air quotes, is telling men, you're part of this problem. Your masculinity is inherently problematic. He declared that the country needs a, quote, revival of strong and healthy manhood and more men who will marry father and uh, father, children, and shoulder responsibility is the way he put it. Holly um, is tapping into, I think, a problem that is real. Uh, men's labor force participation has fallen from 80% in 1970 to 68% in 2021. There's been a major drop-off in men in higher education. There's a recent Wall Street Journal article about this that um, just recently went viral and not just among Republicans. And so I wonder how you think about the actual problem that we're seeing around men participating in the labor force and higher education, um, how Democrats should think about how that works in politics, and how best to maneuver through this, because it does seem to be a real a real issue. It's a great question. You know, I think that Holly, like so often in on their side, you know, whatever merit there is to the argument, he doesn't. The way that he presents it is just so absurd and ridiculous that I think he loses any kind of traction that he would have outside of a very narrow set of people. You know, I have two two young, I have two sons who are 19 and 21. And, um, you know, I this is not, this is an issue that I think is interesting for the country, which is that for all of my work in promoting the new electorate and the fact that we're going through sort of historic and rapid demographic change, there are large numbers of Americans who don't feel that that change is benefiting them and that they are being left behind. And we know from history that those kinds of left behind uh, movements are can breed radical politics. We're seeing it here in the United States. And I do think that we have to, I think somehow we have to go through some kind of process as Democrats to figure out how to listen more to the people that have been left behind. I'm not, I, I don't, I'm not going to sit here and tell you what to do about it, right? And I think that some of the policies that we're promoting are, um, are, are uh, speaking to that, right? The broad internet, you know, universal broadband, I mean, the ACA. I mean, we've done a whole series of things that directly benefit lower socioeconomic status, you know, white folks in rural areas, whether they will ever give us credit for it or not. I mean, it's not like our politics, our money and all the things we're doing is just for our voters, right? They aren't. And But I do think we have to show up here a little bit more. We have to not make it as easy for them to paint us as being disinterested in this the plight of large chunks of the United States. We have to be for everybody. And I think that we can't, I think one of the challenges for us I'm, I'm, I'm going to speak sort of politically incorrect stuff here a little bit, is that we have to be for everybody. And we cannot allow there to be any impression ever that we're not. And I'm going to let your listeners figure out what I mean by that. But I think that we cannot allow the, the introduction of Trump's tribalism into our language and our understanding to be replicated by our own tribalism. And, and I think there has to be more of a return to sort of universality and universal politics that we're all in this together. And I, and I think that we, we are not doing as good a job on that as we could be. And, and I think it's something that is an area of opportunity for us as Democrats going forward. I think that is so well said. Uh, and uh, I thank you for saying it. I completely agree. I also want to point out Holly <laughs> said that being a real man is as being a husband and a father and that the United States needs men who will, quote, raise up sons and daughters after them. But I didn't see him defending Pete Buttigieg when he was faced with, you know, all of that criticism over taking parental leave when his twins were born. So there's that. <laughs> now that we are up to speed on a few of the biggest stories this week, uh, let's talk about what we're watching under the radar. Lucy, what do you have for us? Well, in the um, McCarthyism is alive and well category, and and Tom Nichols, who's been on this podcast, flagged it before before I did. Um, there's a there's a committee a, a, a nomination going through in the Senate right now um, for a Cornell law professor. Her name is Sulla Amarova. She's 
nominated to become the head of the office of comptroller of the currency. It's, a, it's an agency that's actually very powerful and deals with regulating banks and stuff that crypto, Ron. <laughs> um, but she uh, is a um, longtime attorney, law professor at Cornell. Uh, and she was she's she's taken issue with banks. She's taken big issue with cryptocurrency, with tech companies. And she um, is was born in Kazakhstan, which should not matter too much, except that the combination of her past writing, which and by the way, this woman got her start in big law, like, you know, in a at. at it is some big, you know, New York law firm kind of scenario and has been a law professor at elite institutions. She's not exactly like in some sort of like red army. Um, but members, Republican members of the U.S. Senate have decided to basically call her a communist. And this week in the in the confirmation hearings, Senator John Kennedy from Louisiana said to her, quote, I don't know whether to call you professor or comrade. And um, there's there's a lot here. There's 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 a lot here and there's a lot of obvious stuff here. The biggest being her uh, her ethnic background and the fact that she is from somewhere else and is from Kazakhstan. But really, I think it it also Kennedy himself is doing something that is deceitful and dishonest beyond just the obvious McCarthy style tactics of of otherizing this person who's a mainstream uh, American whom we should have respect for and treat decently, which is this sort of pivot. He himself is, I think, an Oxford educated, elite educated guy. But this this push by Republicans like this to just needle and and get at every institution that they think of as a force for evil. And so in the very, very um, worst scenarios, you have something like a, a sitting U.S. senator asking this woman if she's a communist. But we're seeing it trickle throughout and we're seeing it even, I think, in the episode like, and they're certainly not Trumpy, but the episode of. University of Austin being formed and kind of claiming that all of our institutions of, of higher education are are bankrupt and we just need to we need to eradicate all of the institutions that have really been the bedrock. And so I, I mentioned that just because I think we can see that kind of pattern pop up elsewhere and and it is it is really an attempt beyond just destabilizing our democracy in the form of elections and um, decorum in Congress. It's also an attempt to destabilize our cultural institutions, like institutions of, of higher education and, and the people who are a part of it. Yeah, I'm, uh, it's, it's, it's a effective weaponization of identity politics, what he was doing on the floor. Um, I'm, I'm familiar with her and her views on, uh, finance and I disagree with them, but that's not, um, that's not what's happening here. They're not having a full-throated debate on, on her views of the financial system. (laughs) It's, that's just not what's happening. Um, I have, I have a wild story that I'm so excited to share, uh, this week. It is a, it's a, it's a beautifully written piece in the Atlantic by Jill Lepore, who's a staff writer at, uh, at the New Yorker. And she uh, is also a professor of American history at Harvard. It's called The Elephant Who Could Be a Person. And it's been called the most important animal rights case of the 21st century. But outside of just being an important animal rights case, um, it is, first of all, it's a, it's a story about Happy the Elephant, who's currently being kept in the Bronx Zoo. But it's a seriously consequential case in the body of law around personhood and who counts as a person. Uh, and in U.S. law, many people will be familiar that a corporation can be a person, uh, a ship can be a person. Pro-lifers obviously argue that a fetus is a person, and in, in this case, is looking at whether an elephant can be a person. And I just there's a couple of really interesting things about it. To quote from Jill, in an age of mass extinction and climate catastrophe, the questions it raises about the relationship between humans, animals, and the natural world concern the future of life on Earth, 
questions that much of existing law is catastrophically ill-equipped to address. Um, I also think it's it's fascinating politically because it pits environmentalists against animal rights activists. Um, and if 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 this if this personhood argument, um, elephant personhood is a keystone argument, she says, and it's an argument on which all other animal rights arguments. Uh, and even environmental arguments could conceivably depend. So there's like there's a lot riding on this case. Um, and here's he, here's here's a bit of you know uh, poetry. <laughs> um, in the early days of America, right when people were concerned with the mathematics of personhood for the purpose of, for example, representation, uh, the question came up in Congress of whether domesticated livestock like cattle could be counted toward representation. And Benjamin Franklin, I'm quoting from the piece now, Benjamin Franklin offered a rule of thumb for how to tell the difference between people and animals. And he said, sheeps will never make any insurrections. <laughs> he did not He did not mention elephants. So there you go. <laughs> Simon, was, what are you, that what was, are you watching? That was well done. That was well done. <laughs> um, lot, lots to think about there. Um, I, you know, I, I've been thinking, I've been thinking a lot uh, in the last couple of weeks about how the issue of reproductive health and choice is going to play out next year. Um, I think that McAuliffe's campaign, my explanation, and Terry's an old friend of mine, was that they had a perfectly fine strategy to win the election. If Joe Biden was at negative two, they had no strategy to win it at negative seven or eight. And so he got caught in this sort of tide that took him out and almost took out, you know, the, our, the governor of New Jersey. I think this question about, as Lucy was raising this earlier, about how do we make sure that the Republicans can't win back some of the suburban voters? I mean, because we just had two elections in a row where huge numbers of people voted against MAGA, MAGA right? And why would they then not vote against MAGA again if MAGA is actually more virulent, more dangerous, right? And this is where I think the Republicans have a huge problem. Um, is I think that I'm fascinated to see how the issue of choice and reproductive health plays out next year. I think this is not something that we really, you know, was not adequately exploited, frankly, by by McAuliffe in this in this race. And those, all those women who were doing the focus groups and talking about their kids in school, you know, where are they going to come down on, on these issues, right? And what's amazing is that, you know, you look at polling. As we head into 2022, Democrats have gargantuan advantages on virtually every issue that people are going to vote on next year. On COVID, we're up 20, 30 points. On healthcare, we're up 20, 30 points. On choice, you know, the number of Americans who think Roe v. Wade should go away is like 25%, right? Like we're talking about Republicans are in the 20s and low 30s on climate, healthcare, choice, right? COVID. Where they're strong is on the economy, right? And that's where there's an overperformance where we have to close that gap or even jump ahead of them. But I'm just, I'm wondering what's going to happen with the choice issue next year. I think it's a, another big wild card. Um, because it's under, you know, it's under threat and in a way that is almost unimaginable. And what happened, what the Supreme Court's decision in Texas was, you know, one of the worst moments in our history, really. I mean, just sort of just uh, just absurd on its face, right, that they would allow vigilantism and not challenge it in some kind of forceful way. And so I think this is I think this feels really dangerous <laughs> and it's something that and it is really dangerous. And it's something that I think we have to figure out how to engage because it's 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 real. This is not something that we're making up. I mean, this is a real thing. And there's been years and years of and decades and decades and, you know, huge amounts of money that have gone into getting, you know, this issue to the place that it's in now. And I and I think the question of how we can use the radicalization of the Supreme Court um, is going to be really important. And so I, I, that's just something I've been thinking about a lot. And I and I just don't know. And I and I think it's amazing to me it's not being discussed more because you know the gender gap is so huge. And if they if we can wall off suburban women, right, I will never be able to wall off suburban men, right? That's that's going to be a more competitive area for them. But if we can wall off suburban women next year. You know, the math starts getting really hard for them, you know, 
And so I, I think this is really consequential. Expand the tent. Sign. And by the way, I just want to say it's also really <laughs> consequential for the lives of women yeah. and our families. And, you know, I have a 16 year old daughter and, you know, I, I, I think this is a, I, I think this is such, I, I think this issue is so profound and so huge. And I'm just surprised we're not talking about it more. That's all. Simon, Lucy, before we go to the after party, AKA politicology plus, uh, where can people find you on the internet, Simon? Simon WDC on Twitter and also NDN.org is the website, the organization that I run. Fantastic. Lucy? I'm on Twitter at Lucy M. Caldwell. And I'm at Ron Steslow on Twitter. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening today. You can support the show by joining the growing, thriving community of Politicology Plus members and gain access to hours of special content designed to help you think like a political strategist and look further down the road than everyone else and understand the forces and figures shaping the fight for democracy. You can unlock this premium content at politicology.com slash plus. If you have any questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us as always at podcast at politicology.com. Even if we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.